It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In America, November's midterm elections loom large. Republicans are poised to win control of one or both chambers of Congress. Next in their sights will be winning back the White House in 2024. I want to say on behalf of the Republican Party of Iowa and for Iowans in general, we are honored, sir. We are honored for you to be here. All over the country, Republican candidates are campaigning, strategizing, filling war chests and whipping up support. But while the GOP looks ahead to what's next, the legacy of the Trump years is never far behind. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what should the Republican Party stand for? My guest today is Senator Tim Scott, a cheerleader for the revival of the American dream. We are the beacon on the hill. We are the warriors of light. And if we take our responsibilities the way that this room obviously does, the best is yet to come. God bless you. He's the Republican Party's sole African-American senator, the only black senator from the South since Reconstruction, and a rising star in a party that's been transformed since Scott first arrived on Capitol Hill 12 years ago, not least by the Trump effect. In November, the senator will be up for re-election in his home state of South Carolina. America is not a racist country, he said, but racial discrimination and calls for police reform remain defining and dividing issues. And the Republican Party, keen to look ahead, is still riven by internal disputes following last year's insurrection on Capitol Hill. Chaos the senator witnessed at first hand. Tim Scott, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Look, it seems to be a very exciting year from where you're sitting. November, midterm elections, likely to return you to the Senate. We reported last month that predictive markets are giving Republicans over 80% chance of winning the House, 70% chance of retaking the Senate too. Are the Republicans back? Well, and I certainly think this is a time of cautious optimism. I would be more cautious than optimistic right now because November is a long time from now. And so my perspective is we should work really hard to prove to the American people that we have a message that resonates. This is not about politicians. It's not about Washington, D.C. This is about kitchen table economics. This is about what's happening in your home with your kids. And so to the extent that we can keep the message, not about Republicans or Democrats, but about Americans and what's in our best interest of our future, I think we do stand a very good chance of winning back the majority in the House and, and likely the Senate as well. The Senate certainly has a different map. It's more difficult than the House, but I'm really excited about the opportunity to share with the American people what's happening 
on behalf of them as opposed to what we hear so often is what's happening to them. So I think a message of hope and one that is filled with optimism and opportunity is a message that wins uh, in this November. So optimism and opportunity, in some ways, you've stood for that in your own party. Last April, the Republicans chose you to deliver the response to President Biden's State of the Union address to the joint session of Congress. And you said you never dreamt when you were growing up you would be standing there that night. Why not and what changed? Well, Anne, I I will tell you that one of the blessings of living in America is that all things are still very much possible. And part of my story is I I was a kid growing up in a single-parent household. We were mired in poverty. Uh, As a kid, once my parents got divorced, I was frustrated. I was angry at times and disillusioned and I did not do very well as a freshman in high school. My first year in high school, I nearly failed out. I even failed civics, which of course is a study of politics. So having a chance to land on the stage, giving the rebuttal speech to the President of the United States after that slow start, after having to overcome poverty and challenges of low self-esteem, it really it resonates to me that Anything at any time is still very much possible. And frankly, Ann, my first race was against the son of United States Senator Strom Thurmond in the place where the Civil War started. Uh, to win that congressional race uh, was a blessing, and it was spoke to the evolution that's occurred in the Southern heart and, frankly, throughout America. And uh, those are some of the reasons why I thought it was pretty amazing that I stood on a stage uh, giving a rebuttal uh, to the President of the United States. It it was surprising if you looked back over my past. It is. It is striking and it's very impressive. And was there also a part of you thinking, as you say, I've seen a lot of change. That's one of the reasons I can be here. And yet we look at America more broadly. And for many people, particularly I think in the last few years, there's been an awakening of consciousness across the political spectrum, I, I would say, at least broad swathes of it, that too much hasn't changed for people of colour. What's the balance for you about that? And what did it make you think about that gap? Well, and as I said during my rebuttal, this country has afforded me amazing opportunities. It does not make me blind to the need for more progress. I, I am excited about all the good things that have happened in this nation Today, unlike 1965, when I was born, we have 9,000 elected African-Americans throughout every facet of political leadership in this nation. We have African-Americans who are not millionaires, but billionaires. But we've also realized there's still progress to be made. And frankly, uh, as an African-American who's been stopped more than 20 times by police for what I call driving while black. This is an area where I continue to work hard on because I understand intimately the challenges of feeling that there is a hand on or a thumb on the scales of justice. I want to make sure that our justice system reflects more justice. But I will say this, Anne, I believe that we should spend more time in the windshield of our future than we do in the rear view mirror of our past but we can't forget the past. I certainly have not. I remember my grandfather's stories. He lived long enough to 
see me elected to the United States Senate, but when he was a kid, he was picking cotton in cotton fields. So I remember the stories of how much life has changed, but I remember the misery of his time. Uh, and so when I talk about progress, I'm not talking about it in a vacuum. I'm talking about it as an individual who's actually seen and lived through both sides. I will hold myself responsible for more change in this American conversation around the issues of race, but I will refuse to deny the fact that progress has been made, and unfortunately, monetizing conflict is a very lucrative business for today's media. In that kind of firefight about race and racism in, a, in America, you, you said something, and I remember uh, you know, being struck by it at the, the time, you said, hear me clearly, America is not a racist country. So to people of colour and uh, uh, others too who might say, well, there's quite a lot of evidence in some swathes of national life that there is active racism, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that my comments about America not being a racist country was then echoed and reinforced by Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden 24 hours after I made that very clear, emphatic statement. They reinforced the truth that America is not a racist country. Uh, are there still cultural uh, pockets of racism? 100% true. Have I faced racism in my lifetime without question. It's one of the reasons why I said in my rebuttal speech that I have been discriminated against because I have. Uh, and so I look to tackle those pockets of discrimination and racism that still exist, and I want to hit it head on. At the same time that I do that, I want to make sure that I do that with the spirit of honesty and fairness that tells me that as I have seen the transformation happen in this country, I want to celebrate that. But And let me say it this way, because I think it's important from my perspective as a high school student when I was having those tough times mm -hmm. of freshman in high school. The, when I was in the eighth grade, the same high school that I attended for four years, my brother was a sophomore. There was a race riot at my high school when I was an eighth grader. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to that high school next year. It was a scary proposition and a scary thought. And four years later, I was elected as the president of the student government of that very high school. Uh, let's talk about your career in the Republican Party. You went into the Senate in, in 2013. You stood for the Republican Party of Mitt Romney. He was, of course, the presidential nominee in 2012. A few years later, since 2016, uh, GOP has been a very different party, different agenda, different priorities, very markedly a different and often more aggressive tone. You can hear it, you can see it in everything from approach to immigration to social spending and many other issues. What was it that shifted your party, do you think, in, in those crucial years in, in the, the 20 teens? Well, that's a good question and one that I don't have a complete answer for. I'll say what shifted in the party is what shifted in the country. Uh, I think very often we give politicians credit for creating momentum we really don't create momentum. Typically, you ride momentum. And so from the Mitt Romney of 2012 to the President Trump of 2016, I think what actually occurred is that more things came to the surface and we saw uh, people become a little more aggressive, become more responsive. And frankly, we saw that it became more lucrative. There is no doubt that the world and America seems to be leaning in 
to some of the more aggressive spirits. Uh, that sometimes creates a cloud over the policy positions that led to one of the most inclusive economies in the history of the country. Think about the fact that from 2016 to 2020, we were able to create an economy that created 7 million jobs, and two-thirds of those jobs went to African-Americans, Hispanics, and to women. We saw unemployment for the first time in the history of this great nation for African-Americans fall under 6%. In 2019, we had the lowest ever recorded poverty rate in the history of the country. Asians saw their unemployment rate go under 3%, Hispanics under 5%, while a majority of Americans saw a 50-year low in the threes and women 70-year low. So we saw some really important pieces of the puzzle come together, but we also saw, as we should rightfully, uh, rightly uh, perhaps emphasize a little bit, we saw some of the fissures that were already there become exposed uh, in the public forum, and that became a place of profit, and, and that was unfortunate. And so we still are working towards those solutions. It's one of the reasons why I worked with Senator James Langford from Oklahoma on something called Solution Sundays, because I believe that it's very hard to hate what you know. And so the better you know people, the less you dislike them or second-guess them. I think a lot of people would commend your search for commonality, for shared ground. But Thank you, I wonder... <laughs> you knew there was a book coming though, there, didn't you? Of course. That was, that was a very good diplomatic thank there. you. <laughs> I suppose the the other side of that is how do you look at things that, that are probably less easy to deal with and less easy to bring into your view of the Republican Party as something that can support and can uplift. And I'm thinking about the anniversary that's just behind us of January 6th, the riot on the Capitol, which claimed five lives and injured more than 100 police officers on that day. And yet, here we are a year on, many Republicans would say it was either peaceful, had been peaceful, or somewhat violent. There seems to be, shall we say, at least a strong element of denial about what happened that day. They also contend that Donald Trump bears little or no responsibility. So what kind of message do you think that that sends about the Republican Party, what it stands for, what kind of America it wants? Well, I think you, uh, if you ever judge anyone or anything on one of its worst days, you're probably making a false assumption of what you're looking at. January 6th was a day where I was personally in the Senate chambers. I understand what was uh, what I was facing and what our nation was facing. So it's not something that I have to do a whole lot of research on because I lived through that moment. There's no question that, in my opinion, uh, we did not see the finest hour. We saw uh, some people that were exercising their First Amendment rights standing outside the Capitol. Those who entered the Capitol, we saw people's lives at stake. We saw someone die. We saw police defending themselves. Uh, th those were violent people who should be prosecuted. Uh, but we should also recognize that the vast majority of us just a few hours later went and codified the results of the election. And why we forget the part of the, the part of the story where Republicans walked back into the chamber to vote to certify this election, that too has to be a part of that story. And, and that's one of the reasons why, Anne, I like to have the whole conversation so that we can see panoramically both the good and the bad, the ugly and the sad, but also the good that happens when people stand up with good conscience and do the right thing. 
Uh, the RNC voted last week to censure Liz Cheney and Adam Kitzinger for their role on the House Select Committee investigating that attack on the Capitol. Was that the right decision? Well, certainly, uh, I, I would not have done that. I think the truth is that our party is big enough for, for dissenting views. That's always going to be the case. And certainly, uh, the select committee, its construct, it was uh, controversial because Speaker Pelosi decided not to accept Kevin McCarthy, the leading Republican's recommendations to the committee. So it already started off on shaky ground. It just has gotten worse since then. But the truth is that uh, the Republican Party, what I call the great opportunity party, not the grand old party, has to be big enough for voices uh, that are not always in the middle of the mainstream. Do you think the party is heading back towards Donald Trump as its candidate for the next election? There's no doubt that the the largest voice in politics today, the most important voice in politics today, is still President Donald Trump. I don't think that anyone disagrees with that, whether you're Republican or a Democrat. The Democrats seem to focus more on him than than they do on those of us who are, are elected. So I would just suggest that the party will continue to find the right principles that anchor the success story that has been America and that will be America. And the best way for us to get there is for us to focus on principles that are anchored in truth and those principles we see at the kitchen table. And so while I want to make sure that I focus my attention on the answer to your question, I think the larger looming question is, can we bring this country back to a place where we all have confidence in the future? I think we can. It's going to be a struggle that I'll spend the rest of my life making sure we get better every year. I, I absolutely take your word on that and take your own trust on that. But it's just can you do yes, so yeah. while so many in your own party are focused, some might even say fixated, on the stolen election narrative? Well, I, the answer is I certainly can and I certainly will because the truth is that ultimately we have to. You know, Looking back in that rear view mirror at 2020 will not help us make 2022 better for the kids today who are struggling to stay in school. Learning loss is too big of an issue for me to pretend that I can somehow go back and rewrite history. I won't try, so I won't do that. But I will talk about what's important to single mothers like the one that raised me. I will talk about what's happening in, in double family, you know, dual income families where they're trying to figure out, can I keep my kid at home or do, do they need to be in school? Can I go to work? Do I need to stay home? These are the issues that are populating the minds and the hearts of people today. And I will tell you that when you think about all the issues that seem to be uh, focus, focal points, they just don't resonate in the houses around South Carolina. And so I have to remember that there's been a 31% increase in emergency room visits for school-aged kids because of this pandemic. We've seen a 50% increase in attempted suicide. So while I like talking about things that happened two years ago, I need to talk about things that are going to happen tomorrow. Let's talk about uh, police reform and your efforts around that and indeed the attempts to bring bipartisanship. <laughs> the dear old word, we, we keep looking for it, don't we? We're still yes, hunting for it. Yes, uh, just, the search continues. If anyone's seen it, can they get in touch with the show? Um, in your own city, you, you saw the police shooting of Walter Scott in, in 2015. You have, of course, you know, following the conviction of police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. You worked on that police reform bill, also with uh, Democrat Senator Cory Booker, previous guest on this show, across the aisle. There was a lot of optimism at the time that this was something Congress could achieve. Uh, 
what went wrong and what, what should happen next? Here are some of the things that we had in common that I think we should focus on today. We had in common eliminating the chokehold that was so important in New York City with Mr. Garner. I think if we were to focus our attention on providing more resources and more training for the duty to intervene, we saw that in the Chauvin case, or the importance of de-escalation training that would have been helpful in Kenosha. If we focus our attention on data collection so that we understand and appreciate what's happening around the country, that certainly would provide more illumination. If we spent more money on body cameras and the necessity of storing the, the footage, that would produce better results. All those things were points of agreement. What went wrong was a political atmosphere where some preferred the issue to the solution. And I am completely convinced that the day is coming when we will agree to move forward on the things that we agree upon, to include, as Cory Booker, my good friend, wanted the uh, 1031, the militarization of police, that that was on the table, and we made tremendous progress on allowing for certain things to be transferred and to avoid other things being transferred. All those things are in the best interest of the communities where the officers serve and for the officers themselves. Why we wouldn't take 70% as a win, as opposed to looking at the other 30% that creates headwinds? I don't know, but I think we're going to get back there because we keep seeing instances where what we had proposed would have saved lives and trained our officers even better. It's interesting that you, you focus on the granularity there, the training of officers, uh, what holds and restraints are allowed. Of course, these are things are vital for those who are really on the front line of, of, of law enforcement, and often taking incredible risks themselves, we should remember. But the context is surely race relations. It's relations between, broadly speaking, between black and, uh, and white America. And that does seem to, to have undergone something of an upheaval, at least if we look at polling that says at the time you entered the Senate, in fact, in 2013, some 70% of adults described relations as good. During the years from 2016, you won't thank me for saying it, but you know, the Trump years, positive ratings did seem to fall quite drastically. Now, there could yes, be causation, there could be correlation, there could be something entirely different. But it is concerning, isn't it? Yes, of course. Yes, ma'am. I think the unfortunate part is not only did the race relations uh, seem to, to go in the wrong direction during those four years, they continue to go in the wrong direction in the last 18 months or 15 months as well. So what we've seen is that the more you have something reported on, the worse you think it is. Uh, as an example, in the, in the law enforcement and the justice footprint, uh, I, we have fewer incidents of police brutality against African-Americans, but we have more videos of those incidents. And so you assume that the numbers are up even though they are down. And so when you assume something is worse, you feel it in your heart even if it's not real. So the truth is that I believe that so often what we're seeing playing out on the screens across this country is in fact the worst, not a uh, an even perspective of what's actually occurring around the country. And so I do think we should continue to work really hard on race relations. It is important. As a matter of fact, I was having a conversation with uh, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice recently where she said that 
the challenges that we're having, specifically in our Title I schools, could become an actual national security problem, that we can't have some educated and some ed- uneducated. And if you look at the Title I schools, you're going to notice that the vast majority of those are minority students. We have a responsibility to address some of the underlying issues of fairness. And in my opinion, the fastest way for us to address the issue of fairness is not by focusing on race alone. It is by focusing on education as the foundational pillar for fairness in this nation. That is where we're seeing the greatest chasm between the haves and the have-nots from an income perspective, from a healthcare perspective, uh, and from an incarceration perspective. Those are three major issues, and the nexus of those issues is education. Look, let's turn, turn our eyes, uh, if, if we could, to the fraught situation in international affairs and the belief that uh, America in some ways is, is backing out, out of the room or has backed out of the room, and that, that doesn't, uh, I think, uh, any refer to President Biden and the the sudden and chaotic fall of Kabul. It's a sort of sense that perhaps a lot of the world, I'm speaking to you from, from London, the side of the Atlantic, we're looking at the situation that we all know about on the Russia-Ukraine border. Do you believe that uh, America should be leading the world in terms of it, its role as a military superpower? Are you happy with the, the way that it conducts itself currently? I think I would probably draw a line of delineation between leading the world and policing the world. I do think we have a responsibility as the world's only superpower to lead the world. I do not think we have the responsibility of policing the world. As it relates to specifically the the, the Russia-Ukraine situation, I, I think we should lean in with our partners. One of the things that I've seen, which I consider a blessing, is that Putin's actions have strengthen the NATO alliance in a way that almost nothing else has in recent years. So that's a good sign. I do believe that we have to be the world leader when it comes to democracy and diplomacy. I do think that we have a number of arrows in the quiver that can compel behavior that we want to see on the national stage. Uh, I don't think that President Biden has consistently led in the strongest, most powerful way possible. I think he has failed in in many of those, uh, from Afghanistan to in part what we're seeing today. But the truth of the matter is that in the time of time of conflict, that one thing we need is a unified approach to solutions, and a part of that solution is an international community community coming together and opposition to Putin's moves against Ukraine. And I would say that our response collectively in the international community from the West has been positive. And I hope that we are willing to go even further, if necessary, to make sure that Putin gets a message. I think our time is almost up, Senator, but I I couldn't leave you without asking something that does refer actually back back to uh, where you started. You took your time to sort of find out what your calling was. And for that reason, you'll probably be an inspiration to those who didn't immediately know where they wanted to go. You considered seminary at one point. And so I did want to ask you about your faith and how it informs your politics now. You know, what kind of terms are you on with the almighty? What a way to end, huh? That's a great way of ending it. I will say that it's because of my faith that I am optimistic about what is possible in the future. I'm a big believer in a 
a scripture that says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. I think the truth is that we should pray like it depends on Him and work like it depends on us. The one lesson that I learned as a ninth grader was uh, hoping and praying that somehow miraculously I'd wake up with the answers to the test didn't work very well for me. So I learned that you have to work hard. And as a kid that had too big of an ego and too few results, the one lesson I had received from my faith is uh, Matthew 7, 1 reminds me not to judge or by the measure that I judge, it will come back to me. And so what I've tried to do is focus on making the world a better place because I believe that I am not the end of all, that I am simply a conduit to bring hope and opportunity to other, other people. And as a public servant, my responsibility is to put me last and others first. That is daily dying to my flesh because that is not easy for me to do, but it is the commitment that I will spend the rest of my life trying to get right. Tim Scott, Senator, lovely to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Anne. You take care now. And of course, we'd love to know what you think about the GOP's November prospects and the Republican Party's future direction too. Is Donald Trump on the way back or maybe your bet is on the Joe Biden years lasting longer? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And for more from The Economist on race in America, listen to Checks and Balance, our sister podcast on US politics. In tomorrow's episode, the show will be looking at the Supreme Court's decision to hear two cases challenging race-conscious admissions programmes. Might this be the end of affirmative action in higher education? And while you're with us, why not become a subscriber today? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Julia Johnson and Alicia Burrell. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.